years, and one of them is free uh, to download on your device uh, this week, and uh, it's called Romancing the Saints. If you, or you can just go to Amazon and put in my name, and the books will come up. But if you'd like to, uh, what do you've got to lose? It's free, right? And uh, read that, and it's a, I think it'll be a fun devotional uh, for you. Romancing the Saints, uh, calvaryhanford.com slash free book. All right, so we are going to be in the book of Judges this morning, and we're going to be in chapter 16. You want to open your Bible to Judges 16 or navigate on your device? You want to keep your device on to ring? That's fine. Just know I will make fun of you when it goes off. I will single you out and embarrass you uh, mercilessly. But anyway, that'll be fun. Judges 16, verses 1 through 3. The topic we're going to find there, God empowers Samson to carry the bronze gates of Gaza to Hebron. The title of our message, Carry Bronze, My Wayward Son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning. Sweet time of worship, Lord. Great to see Pastor Mike. Pray for he and Lee, Lord. Pray that they're having a good time of uh, refreshment, Lord. Uh, as he mentioned, Lord, just reveling in your creation and kind of a different part of the world. We long for you, Lord. We thirst for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water so often. We anticipate and pray for your soon coming, your immediate coming, Lord, to take us home. In the meantime, we want to know you more. And one of the ways that you've given us to do that, a primary way, is through your word inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that the Spirit would be our teacher today, that you would take the words you inspired and inspire them again to our hearts. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Casting decisions can make or break a feature film. George Lucas made Al Pacino an offer he could refuse when he asked him to play the role of Han Solo in Star Wars. Just think about that for a second, but not for too long. James Cameron wanted O.J. Simpson for the T-800 in the original Terminator movie. The studio said, hasta la vista, baby, and they uh, said no. So let's pretend that you are a Hollywood casting agent. So you're, you're a casting agent, and you receive a call from one of the prominent directors to work on a biblical film about Samson. Who would you cast to play Samson? I'll give you just a few seconds to think about it. You don't have to shout it out or anything. Just your best guess as to who you would cast as Samson. My pick in the 1980s would have been Jason Alexander. George Costanza from Seinfeld. Today, I would offer the role to Andrew Garfield or maybe Jesse Eisenberg, Jewish actors. Uh, one played the second Spider-Man, and the other was uh, Lex Luthor in some of the recent DC films. It would definitely be a break from the traditional approach. There have been remarkably few feature films about Samson, but in every one of them, the lead is a muscled guy. 1949, Samson and Delilah, a buff Victor Mature was the hero. 2013 miniseries, The Bible, Nonzo Anzoni, six foot six inches tall, 280 pounds. Uh, then in 2018, there was a movie called Samson. You've never heard of it. It's a pure flicks production, received a 25% tomato meter score on Rotten Tomatoes. 
If you're not familiar with Rotten Tomatoes, 25% is bad. And so nobody liked that movie. But he was uh, played by Taylor James, six foot, two and a half inches tall, another muscled guy. So the question is, was Samson a muscle-bound gym rat? Well, the Philistines were constantly puzzled as to his source of strength. If his muscles had muscles, there would be no head scratching about why he was so strong. Furthermore, his average build explains why when he gave up the secret of his strength to Delilah, Samson was unaware that he was powerless. He didn't suddenly not have muscles anymore. He, he didn't change physically. He changed spiritually. The story demands that he be an average guy empowered by God the Holy Spirit, not Gold's Gym. We are average guys and gals empowered by God the Holy Spirit, not by the perfecting of the flesh. And so that's, a, that's our basic point of contact with this story and with the life of Samson. We are average, empowered by God the Holy Spirit, not the perfecting of our flesh. So our text in chapter 16 records one of Samson's most impressive shows of strength. As is sadly the case with him, it simultaneously reveals his refusal for moral strength. The same power by which Samson performed feats of strength was available for him to put to death his flesh. So let's get into it, beginning in verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. Gaza was deep in Philistine territory and one of its major cities. Commentators are all over the place as to why Samson went to Gaza and whether or not he should have. I like to give Bible characters the benefit of the doubt. You know, you hear a lot of messages about, uh, you know, uh, Paul the Apostle, for example, making mistakes and, uh, you know, he should have done this. He shouldn't have done, the, you know, paid for the vow for those young men and it ended up getting him arrested or Peter should have done this or that. And I just think we should give these guys the benefit of the doubt if we can. If we're not told that their motives were wrong, then, then we should give them the benefit of the doubt. One reason is you're going to see all these guys in heaven. Now, I don't want Samson coming up to me in heaven and say, hey, on June 27th, when you taught for Mike, you said some pretty nasty things about me. And so I'd like to deal with you. I mean, I don't know how they solve disputes in heaven, but I don't want to run into Samson in, in one, right? And so we want to give him the benefit of the doubt. And there is, if you think that way, there is something compelling about Gaza that might have drawn him there. The Bible tells us in Joshua 11, verse 22, none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. The Anakim were what we call Nephilim. They were the giants we read about in Genesis chapter 6, the offspring of fallen angels marrying and mating with human women. At our church on a Wednesday night, we did a series called The Days of Noah. If you're interested in this kind of thing, uh, in this kind of thread of knowledge, uh, you can find it on our website or a podcast, The Days of Noah. And it's an important topic because Jesus said what? As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the end times. And it's interesting that Jesus specifically mentioned that in Noah's day, they were marrying and joining in marriage. And the only marriages you read about in Genesis 6 are these weird relationships between angels who are fallen and human women. And so it all very important stuff. And so the Bible tells us that none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel except in Gaza. And so that's where they were. 
In the time of the exodus from Egypt, the Bible records that Nephilim were once again on the earth, concentrated in the promised land. It was a satanic strategy to stop the Israelites from entering, and it worked. We read in Numbers chapter 13, they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us today. It truly flows with milk and honey and there is its fruit. Uh, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. The ten men said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw in it are men of great stature. We saw giants, the descendants of Anak, and we were like grasshoppers in our sight, and so we were in their sight. Moses sent 12 men in to spy out the land. Ten spies came back with this report that struck fear in the hearts of the people. Only Caleb and Joshua encouraged obedience. They were overruled, and in fact, their lives were in danger for a time. The primary fear from going into the land was that it was the land of the giants. And these are real giants, some of them described in the Bible as tall as 15 feet, uh, agile warriors, not lumbering beasts. Uh, the, and, and so this was a, a real concern. Joshua and Caleb, they did a David and said, hey, who cares? You know, we'll easily defeat these giants with the Lord on our side, but the rest of the people prevailed, and you know the story. God prohibited everyone 20 years of age and older from going into the promised land. The Israelites wandered 40 years while that generation died in the wilderness. Joshua then led the Israelites into the land, and Caleb demanded his inheritance. He said, now therefore give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day, for you have heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and the cities are great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And so the giants descended from Anak were in the land in the days of Joshua, and they lived in the promised land until eradicated around four centuries later in the days of King David. You want to read a wild passage about this, 2 Samuel 21. David and his men encounter and defeat giants named Ishbibubinab, who was carrying a bronze spear that weighed about seven and a half pounds. Goliath from Gath, a different Goliath, whose spear had a shaft as thick as the bar on a weaver's loom. And another giant who loved to fight, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. By the way, just this week, a publication called The Guardian posted an article last uh, titled Massive Human Head Found in Chinese Well. Did anybody here see this article? You did? Yeah. Uh, there's a whole story behind this, but the gist of it is they found this oversized, massive skull. They know that it's genuine. It's not a fake because they have the history of it. And non-believing scientists are already saying that it's going to change the way they understand evolution, uh, you know, because it seems that 
there were this race of individuals who actually, you know, they say mated with uh, Homo sapiens, but uh, we would say that it's the remains of a Nephilim giant. And so this is real stuff that's uh, fascinating. Uh, again, the days of Noah, you would, you know, in the days of Noah, there were Nephilim, and now they're finding genuine remains that are Nephilim. And so it's, it's a very interesting tie-in. Over the years, people have said they had giant skeletons, and there have been some. A lot of them are hoaxes. We don't want to believe everything that's out there on the Internet. I know that might sound strange to some of you, but uh, there are some things on the Internet that are not true. And so be careful about that, but this is a verified topic. And even if they don't find Nephilim bones, uh, there were Nephilim right into the time of David, and it ties into the days of Noah. Now, perhaps Samson went to Gaza to confront giants. He was, after all, Israel's judge and hero. And if you read his story, he was a guy that liked to pick a fight. And so I see Samson with maybe not absolutely pure motives, but with motivation to go to Gaza and take on giants in the strength of the Lord. Any spiritual intentions Samson may have had were quickly derailed when he saw a local prostitute. Doug the dog in the Pixar film Up. How many of you have seen Up and are familiar with Doug? So cute. He communicates with people through an electronic collar. And as he's talking, he will yell out, Squirrel! when he is momentarily distracted by one running by, and then he totally loses his train of thought. Samson sees a prostitute, and his flesh yells, Girl! And whatever it was he was going to do in Gaza, he completely uh, bails on. If this were a psalm, the writer might have inserted a selah, which we take to mean stop and think of this. What are my weaknesses? What are yours? Those thoughts and behaviors that seem to best you. Distractions from things that are spiritual. Things that you would say are a squirrel to you or squirrels. And they don't all have to be sinful things. We immediately go there and we think, well, I'm not really sinning in any areas. I'm a, I'm a sinner, but I'm not doing these certain things. It doesn't have to be sin. It's, it's anything that kind of gets you off course a little bit in your walk with the Lord. Not even backslidden, just a distraction. I found over the years in my own life and in the life of mature Christians uh, that we are easily distracted because we believe that we have gained in spiritual strength and now have liberty. Liberty is a big thing today. Everybody blogs about liberty. I have the liberty to do this and that and the other thing and things that used to be taboo are now uh, mainstream in the church and all. I don't want to list anything because I would only list things that I don't do. Uh, to make myself seem more spiritual. But a lot of times a mature Christian will think, well, I, I used to do that, and it wasn't good when I did it, but maybe now that I'm mature, I can bring that back into my lifestyle. I can bring that back into my thinking, because after all, it's not going to stumble me. I won't get addicted to it. I can do it a little bit. It is a liberty. The Bible doesn't say I can't do it. But you know what? There are things that you can't do that other people can do. Whatever's not of faith for you is sin. I take that to mean that if I don't have a pure heart, if, I, if my heart doesn't allow me to do something in this gray area uh, without wondering about it, then I shouldn't do it. And so you can't say that all Christians shouldn't do this and all Christians should do that. Uh, but a lot of times in our maturity, we bring back into our life things that are licenses to sin uh, as liberties. And so 
you know, is there something that like that in your life right now? The Lord wants to deal with it. Verse two, when the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city of, uh, at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night saying, in the morning, when it's daylight, we'll kill him. Now, the Gazites are not our example in this text, but we can learn some things from them. First of all, there was no point in waiting, no point in putting off the confrontation until the next day. It could only make matters worse. For one thing, Samson would probably be more rested. I mean, they ought to go in uh, right then or maybe in the middle of the night because Samson will be exhausted. He'd probably be drunk. Uh, he'd be spent and uh, not paying attention and whatever else comes with revelry. That would be the time to, to capture him. You, a guy like Samson with his reputation, you don't want to give him an edge. You don't want to meet a fully rested Samson in the morning. You want to get him in the middle of the night with an overwhelming group of people in the dark, uh, it, it, you know, using tactics that he's not ready for. There's no point in putting off dealing with the flesh. Now, when I talk about the flesh, if you're a Christian, you know what I mean. It's your unredeemed humanity. We have this treasure, the gospel, being born again in earthen vessels. And our outer man is perishing, but it's also filled with habits uh, and propensities to sin. And so there's no use putting off dealing with the flesh. It's a silly example, but when you decide you're going to go on a diet, do you or do you not indulge yourself the day before? Huh? Adkins diet, I've been on that years ago. Oh, mom, mom, I mean diet, you know. I eat about 100 pounds of spaghetti before I go on the Adkins diet. I grew up Roman Catholic. First of all, for Lent, I always gave up something I didn't want anyway. Just made things easier. No one ever really explained the principle to me. Said I had to give up something for Lent, so I gave up something I couldn't do. But I do know that Fat Tuesday comes before Ash Wednesday. Is that correct? And you know Fat Tuesday? I was an adult before I figured that out. Fat Tuesday is the big parade and party and indulgence. And then you wake up on Ash Wednesday and you become humble and spiritual and holy with ashes on your forehead. And so it's a propensity that we have uh, to give in to the flesh. And there's no reason putting it off. We need to just deal with it, uh, you know, when it comes up. The overnight wait heightened the fears of the Gazites because they had time to contemplate this confrontation. Samson had killed 30 men in Ashkelon to acquire their garments in order to pay off a debt at his wedding. 30 men. Samson had more recently killed 1,000 men using only the jawbone of a donkey. Samson's the guy who brings a Swiss army knife to a gunfight and prevails against multiple shooters who wear body armor and have fully automatic weapons. I mean, if this, this is how Hollywood would portray this. You've seen scenes in movies where your hero, you know, all he has is a, a piece of gum and the army's coming and somehow he beats them all. Samson's that guy. I mean, he's, you know, thousand men. All right, jawbone of a donkey. Perfect. I'll kill a thousand men with that. And so you didn't want to, you didn't want your, you didn't want your army or your men or whoever they were. You didn't want them thinking about what could happen. Uh, because Samson was what today we would call a bad dude, right? Verse three, and Samson lay low until midnight. 
Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Samson checked out of this no-tell motel early. The Gaza SWAT team held their positions while Samson approached the locked gates. I don't know what their strategy was, but maybe it was to wait until he got to the gates and then kind of uh, he wouldn't have any place to escape. The whole battle would be in front of him. Before they could engage, Judge Gideon did something no one would have anticipated. I read a scholarly paper on the gates of Gaza. They remain undiscovered, but the gates of similar cities have been found. The author estimated conservatively that the gates would have weighed anywhere from five to 10 tons. Five to 10 tons. These were those huge gates you see in the movie, giant walled cities. Would have been made of timber and bronze. Five to 10 tons, that's upward of 20,000 pounds. Samson came to the gates, picked them up as if they were balsa wood props on a movie set. He carried them 18 hours, 36 miles, some of it uphill to an elevation of over 3,000 feet. If, you're, if you don't read the story carefully, you think, well, he picked up the gates and then he left. But no, he picked them up, put them on his shoulders, and then he walked uh, 18 hours, 36 miles, 3,000 feet. I can't walk for 18 hours for 36 miles at a level elevation. Do you understand? It's, it's, I just can't do it. And so Samson, this is a tremendous feat of physical strength. The archaeologist whose paper I read did a series of calculations concluding, and I quote, the horsepower which would have been exerted would be approximately 30 horsepower. Now, immediately, you guys that are into muscle cars, you think, oh, that's nothing. The original VW Bug had 25 horsepower. And look at that thing. It can't even get out of its way. Although, did you have anybody here have a bug in high school? Did, you, did, the, did the football team ever come and move it? Remember, they had, they had bumpers that had built-in handles, it seemed like. And anybody who drove a VW Bug to our school, San Gregorio High School, I wasn't part of the football team, but these big guys would get together, and they would literally pick up the car and move it, sometimes to a place where it couldn't be driven from. You know, And, and uh, it was a cruel trick, but, but you're in high school, and it's fun. Uh, so you think, okay, 25 horsepower, 30 horsepower, that's no big deal. Well, it is a lot of horsepower for a man. Russian Olympic weightlifter Vasily Alexiev. Now, that's, that's a blast from the past. Uh, I, I am more contemporary than that, uh, but this author used him. This was one of the guys when I was a kid. I used to watch, you know, the Agony of Defeat on ABC's Wide World of Sports, and he was this big, heavy, notice I didn't say fat. He was this big, heavy Russian weightlifter, and he was a, a gold medalist. His best effort in competition topped out at point five horsepower, 0.5. And so Samson, his feet was at least 60 times stronger than the best human effort. So obviously this is not from working out. Uh, this is supernatural. Some of you may be into rucking. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Rucking? Okay. It's a real thing. It is, anybody, how about CrossFit? You know what CrossFit is? A lot of CrossFitters have heard of rucking. It, rucking is wearing a, or walking with a weighted backpack that they call a rucksack. 
And there are Go Ruck team challenges. A few years ago, a friend of mine uh, from the church, he came to Bakersfield because they entered into a Go Ruck team challenge. And so you'll have a, you have to pay for this kind of, uh, you know, torture. Uh, and so you pay to sign up and you have a team and then you have a leader and he has a course that he's lined out where he takes you down into ravines and up little hills and across water and up and down ladders. And you have a ruck sack with so much weight in it. And if you can't make it, then your partner or your team has to help you. And by the time you're done, if you can finish, you are absolutely exhausted. If you see pictures on the Go Ruck website, you have to really be a physical fitness nut to want to do that. I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean, I, I look at that and I have uh, hypertension just thinking about it. But for some people, hey, go for it. It's a, it's a great physical activity. Is the Christian walk a go ruck? Should you feel burdened? Jesus said his burden was light. And Peter said, cast your cares upon him. Your flesh is like the gates of Gaza. Your best efforts against sin lack horsepower. You require Holy Spirit power, which has been provided for you. Some years ago, a friend, Pastor Dennis Davenport from Calvary Chapel of the High Desert, said something obvious but life-changing. Have you ever just come to a simple realization in the Christian life that, that really is meaningful to you? Something the Lord shows you that's so easy and simple. It's something you even knew, but all of a sudden your mind really can wrap around it. Dennis was teaching, and he said, God's word is God's enabling. God's word is God's enabling. Let me give you an example. A man in the Gospels had a withered hand. Scholars uh, say that he probably had a withered arm. It would be rare to just have a withered hand. Uh, but the hand was the part that they were uh, referring to. And so he had some form of paralysis that had caused his muscles to atrophy and his arm just hung by his side. He couldn't do anything with it. Jesus said to him, stretch out your hand. Now I'm quoting from Mark, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. He could not stretch out his hand. Jesus told him to do it. God's word, stretch out your hand, when believed, was the enabling to do God's word. And so God said, stretch out your hand. He couldn't do it, but he did it anyway. He believed he could do it, and he did. God never tells you what to do without providing spirit power to do it. I can say that with confidence because that it would be cruel. It would lack compassion. Uh, if you're, you know, those of you who have children, if you, I can't think of a good example right now, but you would never tell your child to do something that you know they cannot do physically or emotionally and then discipline them for it or make them feel bad about it. God wouldn't do that to us either. And so whatever God tells us to do, here's the conclusion, I can do. Wow. Now that's, I don't know about you, but that's life-changing to me. So I'm reading along in Ephesians, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I better go to 17 marriage seminars to figure out how that works. And I'm not putting down seminars or retreats, not at all, but it works because I, God says to do it. He doesn't say to learn how to do it. 
He, say, he doesn't say, husbands, learn how over the course of your walk to love your wife the way I loved you. He says, love your wife right now the way I loved you. And so you're going to really have to think, well, how does the Lord love me? And the minute you say, I can't do that, God says, no, my word is the enabling. Stretch out your marriage hand. Women, submit yourself unto the, your husband as unto the Lord. Oh, <laughs> is it you can't do that or you won't do that? I mean, you know, it's, it's, husbands are pretty knuckleheaded sometimes, I understand. But again, it's not something that we learn to do. We, we learn things about it. We get better at it. But it's something God tells us right then that, to do. And he's not telling us to do something we can't do. You shouldn't get up from that passage and say, Lord, if I could only do this. If only you had provided the power for me to obey you, I would. And he has. And so it's, it's really a life-changing understanding. Uh, and it sets you free because though I want to mature in the faith and grow, and that's the process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus from glory to glory, looking at his image in the mirror and all of that. Even the youngest believer, even the most new Christian, though they make a lot of mistakes, they can obey the Lord. They don't need more of the Holy Spirit. They just need to yield to the Holy Spirit. Speaking of gates, Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. It's easy to misread what he said. He wasn't saying that hell, which in this passage is literally Hades, was on the offensive. Gates are not a weapon. They are a defense. Now, don't get me wrong. The church most certainly is involved in spiritual warfare. Our enemy, tell them I'll call back. Can you hear it or is it just me? That's all right. Now I can't. How do you make fun of an iPad? I don't know how to do that. You wish you were an Android. Anyway. Our enemy goes about like a roaring lion. He has darts and arrows and fiery traps and utilizes lures and he constructs obstacles. So we understand spiritual warfare is real. But Jesus here announced his total victory over the supernatural realm. He would die on the cross, then rise from the dead. He would thereby crash the gates of Hades. Now, let's talk about Hades for just a minute. Before his resurrection, the souls of all deceased, both the righteous and the unrighteous, went to Hades to await resurrection. You remember from the account of the rich man and Lazarus that Hades is divided into two areas. One is a place of torment for the unrighteous. One was a place of comfort for the righteous. And so when a non-believer dies today, their spirit goes to Hades, just like the rich man's did in the Gospels. But when a believer dies today, you are, uh, Paul the Apostle says, absent from your body and what? Present with the Lord. And so uh, you don't go to Hades. There's a passage in the book of Ephesians that scholars think involves Jesus and Hades. Ephesians 4, 8, therefore he says, when he ascended on high... He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? After his crucifixion, but before his resurrection, three days later, Jesus descended into Hades. When he rose from the dead, he unlocked the gates to allow the righteous souls in Hades to accompany him to heaven. And that's why he says of himself in the Revelation, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
I have the keys of Hades and of death. And so that's the victory that the Lord has won for us. Jesus, God come in human flesh. And if in uh, Philippians, we see that he laid aside the prerogatives of his deity in order to live on earth as a human being, led by, filled by the Holy Spirit. He was always God. He became man, God and man at the same time. But for the purposes of our salvation, he lived a human life, not calling upon his own powers. He said at one point, I only do what my father tells me to do. And as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, he defeated sin and death and Satan and proved it by rising from the dead the third day. And so that's the kind of power that is available to us. Or I, or I should say that's the kind of person the Holy Spirit is to us. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power is within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus' pronouncement about the gates of Hades happened to take place in Caesarea Philippi. It is situated near a mountainous region containing Mount Hermon. According to one scholar, in Jewish tradition, Mount Hermon was the location where the divine sons of God descended from heaven, corrupting humankind with their offspring uh, with human women. These offspring were known as Nephilim, ancestors of the Anakim. It's amazing to me, and, and I'm sure to you too, how the Bible tells one story from beginning to end. How many different authors, how many different books, how many different epics of time and, and whatnot, and yet it all ties together. Everything we read in Genesis uh, is true. Everything we read in Revelation is true. Everything in between is true. And they all have these interplays with one another. And so Jesus declared war on death and Hades, and it's a war he won for us by rising from the dead. Hollywood might cast Dwayne the Rock Johnson as Samson. What do you think? I bet some of you thought of, of, of him or think, you know, in retrospect, say, oh, yeah, he'd make a great Samson. Not my finest hour, but a man's got to go to work, the Rock posted on Instagram. We experienced a power outage due to severe storms, causing my front gate not to open. I tried to override the hydraulic system to open the gates, which usually works when power goes out, but this time it wouldn't. Made some calls to see how fast I could get the gate tech on site. You know, you all probably have your own gate tech, right? Just on speed dial. Honey, get the gate tech here. Uh, but uh, I didn't have 45 minutes to wait. By this time, I know I have hundreds of production crew members waiting for me to come to work so we can start the day. So I did what I had to. I pushed, I pulled, I ripped the gates completely off by myself tore it out of the brick wall, severed the steel hydraulics, and threw it on the grass. Our rock, Jesus the rock Christ, had an encounter with the gates of Hades. He didn't have to push or pull or rip them off their hinges. As we've said, the effort was supernatural. He depended upon the Holy Spirit. He humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, submitted to death on the cross, and became the savior of all men, especially those who believe. It's really freeing. It's very satisfying to see Jesus as the perfect man. You and I will never be perfect. We have a sin nature. Many of us got saved later in life. And as a result of that, we have even worse habits than some others. Uh, but at the same time, Jesus said, this power, this spirit 
he can empower you as he did me, and you can have victory. We need to abandon our half-horsepower, struggling self-effort to live the Christian life. We have an unlimited empowering by God the Holy Spirit. And so think of it all, as I said twice already, stretching out your hand. You can do it if God says you can. The end of every Samson movie has him pushing the pillars of the pagan temple, bringing down the house on God's enemies. And in all of those movies, he struggles and he strains and he pushes and he grunts in all of his strength. It doesn't look like they're going to move. And then finally, they begin to move just a little bit at a time. And then the whole thing collapses. And again, it's Hollywood's understanding. It's the secular understanding of God's strength. That sure, he was strong, but, but he was strong physically, and that's how he did it. And, and I think sometimes, I know it's sometimes in my Christian life, I think that the strength is, is from me. That, you know, God got me started, but now it's up to me in order to continue this thing. I'm not talking about the fact that we need to be disciples and, dis, uh, and disciplers, or that we need to give every effort to the Christian life as a good athlete would. I'm talking about whether or not we have victory over sin and how we walk with the Lord and whether it's a struggle or whether it is a submission and a surrender. If you were saved later in life or if you know someone who was, was there a whole lot of struggling and straining and self-effort when you got saved? When I got saved, like a lot of other people here and everywhere, I had problems. I drank more than I should. Uh, you know, I get drunk all the time. I hated my wife, who I'm still married to 45 years later, wanted to divorce her, uh, you know, just uh, terrible things. Uh, and then I, a brother in Christ, shared the Lord with me, and I prayed the sinner's prayer. And then all of a sudden, I was a different person. I was transformed from within. I did absolutely nothing. I think even the words I spoke were only an acknowledgement of what I was feeling in my heart. I loved my wife. I told her I did. I didn't drink anymore. I didn't have to try not to drink. I just somehow knew it was wrong for me. It was wrong for me. And I haven't drank since. Didn't smoke pot anymore. Didn't do a bunch of things that I used to do. I got saved. I didn't have to, I didn't have to go anywhere and, and check into a program. The Lord didn't say, now that you're saved, here are five programs that will help you get on track. And see, when you're a young Christian, it's like, wow, man, it's like you're flexing spiritual muscles. And then you get mature and you think you've had something to do with that. You, you think that you've defeated your flesh and that it's so defeated that you can start to feed it again. You can't. You really can't. Your flesh. One thing I learned early on in the Christian life, your flesh, your, your, your unredeemed body, it never gets weaker. It only gets stronger and more irritable. It's, it's like when you're, when you're denying the flesh, walking in the spirit, it's like at the back of some cave, like a cornered animal. And then when you decide you're going to have it come out a little bit, it, it just overwhelms you. It devours you. You don't want to have anything to do with that. And so having begun in the spirit, Paul said what? Are we made perfect in the flesh? Because so many Christians do that. A lot of churches do that. We begin in the spirit, and then we try to make perfect in the, in the flesh. 
at Hanford, one of the, I, I don't know what goes on here. I, I love your church and you guys are a super spirit-led church and, and Mike is an amazing pastor. If I didn't go to church in Hanford, I'd drive here to come to church because I just love what you guys have going. So just talking about Hanford. I think there should be ministries that we don't do anymore. We've been a church, what, 35, 36 years? There, you have to cycle through things, don't you think? I mean, some things never change. You always have Sunday morning, you teach the word, you preach the gospel, all that. But there are a lot of different Bible studies or outreaches or stuff. Man, if you're still doing everything you did, you might not be led by the Spirit. Because God does different things at different times with different people. And, and yet I know how hard it is to stop something. To actually say, hey, we need to, we need to quit doing this right now. This is on life support. W there's no spirit involved in this anymore. It's just on life support. It's a good thing. It was a good thing. It's a spiritual thing, but we don't have the power for it right now. It's not something that we should be doing. We should be doing this. And it's always hard. It's, it's always hard. Do I have, how, what time is it? Oh, I got plenty of time. First service I was done at, what was it, 9.30? You guys should have, you should have been here first service. They blew their minds. But anyway, now I'm just sharing. I'm getting more personal with you. But um, so we bought land at one point in Hanford. 18 years we were at the YMCA. We bought land. We thought we were going to build on it. We had architects come in. We had drawings. You know how all that is, you know, and here's our building and this is what it's going to look like. We got the architects to come out and they said, well, your building is going to cost $4 million. And uh, we said, well, we can only, the lender will only lend us a million dollars. Well, this, you know, we can get a shed from Home Depot, uh, you know, and you guys can, you know, use it as a prayer closet or something. But, and so the church was all excited. We bought land. We paid off the land, lickety split. We own the land. We're ready to build. We've got pictures of this building. And one Sunday at the YMCA, folding chairs that if you're heavier than 250 pounds, they broke underneath you and some kind of curtains behind me. Our kids used to have Sunday school in the gym area and the racquetball courts where they couldn't hear anything. You know, echoey. I got up in front of the church and I said, we can't build. We can't afford it. It's going to cost us $4 million. We can borrow a million dollars and we're not going to ask for money. Man, people, I could, they were visibly, ups, not upset, but sad. And people would started coming up to me and saying, why did we buy land if we can't build on it? And I wanted to say, good question. <laughs> I wanted, and I thought, well, I thought we were led to do that. And it was a, it was a, it's a third world, it's a first world problem, but it was a terrible time. And then something went crazy in Hanford, maybe here too in Bakersfield, some kind of a real estate thing was going on a few years ago, 18 years ago. Your house doubled in value for 10 minutes. And people were moving around and doing stuff. And um, we uh, went to our lender and said, hey, we have the opportunity to buy a, a Baptist church here in town that is moving out of town now that they're able to procure their loan. And uh, we bought it for $875,000. It was, I think, 10 times bigger than what we would have built. And a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful building. And then we understood, well, this is God's plan. Because of the land, we were able to use as collateral to get into that building. And, and it was uh, way better than we would have built. No capital campaign. 
And then 18 years we've been in that building. God loves symmetry. And just this summer, we paid off that building. We own it free and clear. And so that's, you know, I really feel, and now I'm telling you that not be, because it wasn't me. It was our church. It was our leadership. It was just saying, hey, we have as a fundamental principle where God guides, God provides. We're just going to wait. And so this ministry, this is, this is our plan. And it's obviously not God's plan. He has a better plan. And so let's just wait on the Lord and, and do what we've been doing until the Lord shows us what that plan is. Having begun in the spirit, we can't be made perfect in the flesh. We have to continue in the spirit. I like the mind of A.W. Tozer. Let me end our talk with a simple observation he made. You know, the simplest things are really the best. He said this, we go astray when we attempt to do spiritual work without spiritual power. Amen. Father, thank you so much for the life of Gideon. It was a, in many ways a wasted life, Lord. Uh, at the same time, he was your judge, and he did uh, things, Lord, that, that kept Israel in a position uh, to continue and to be the line of the Messiah and all of those things. And, uh, Lord, we want to learn from Samson. Uh, maybe learn, Lord, that there are some things that we should be taking on as he went to Gaza to, to kill those giants, but also, Lord, to not be distracted while we're doing it. I pray, Lord, that we would realize this morning your yoke is always easy and your burden is light. And you want us to cast our cares upon you. It's not that the Christian life is easy. It's not, a lot, words like easy and hard don't apply. But the Christian life is the spirit-led life. And we want, Lord, to be more and more led by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.